um, it's been an interesting passage, but it's also been a very, very challenging passage as well, which is quite frankly most of Ephesians in the first place. But Ephesians is rich, as is all of God's Word. But as we come to this portion today, as we come to the la- this last section, it's going to be a summary of sorts. Yeah, but I want to make sure, and at least I pray that I do, drive home the point that Paul is making here. As we contemplate what he says here, is he says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We get to verse 32, and verse 32 is the bedrock, so to speak, of what's going on in this passage. Paul says, confessing this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He says it explicitly. Now, how you live that out is a whole lot more difficult. We all know that to be true. But if we painted a a mental picture of what Paul is getting at and what's going on, and perhaps where we are this morning, I want you to kind of travel with me for a moment before we start looking at the details of what's here. Travel with me for a moment to a river's edge, a river's shore. And as you're standing on this river's edge, there's two ferries to choose from to to get across on the other side. Both of the gentlemen running these ferries seem like decent guys. On the other side, though, there's Mr. Joy, one gentleman who you would like to get across and meet. On the other side, there's Mr. Mediocrity. You're not as interested in him. You have your bags, and you're ready to get on one of these ferries. And you go to the ferry that's supposed to take you to Mr. Joy, which is where you really want to go in the first place. So obviously, you'd go to him. Well, when you get up to the men running this ferry, he says he has no fees. It's absolutely free. But there's one condition. You can't take all your baggage. You don't like that too much, even though that's what who you want to go see is Mr. Joy. So you say, you know what, let me go see what the other man's offering down the way. Maybe I'll settle for Mr. Mediocrity over here. So you get over there. You ask him what his fees are. Um, And he doesn't have much of a fee at all. It's a very small fine. And you get to take all of your luggage. Except you don't get to go see Mr. Joy. Not at all. And too often what we do, whether it's in marriage or whether it's just simply in the Christian life, is we desire joy and we settle for mediocrity because we're not willing to give up our baggage. And we say, you know what? I'm taking my baggage with me. I'll cross this river and I'll make mediocrity out to be who I want him to be. Which is what every wife thinks she's going to do to her husband. It doesn't always turn out that way. And so we end up going across the river on this little ferry to mediocrity. We end up getting across on the other side, and we realize that there's other people that have been in this ferry that left their baggage, and he says we have to take it with him. We end up with more than we thought we would. And we see the others cross the river to see Mr. Joy, who are happy and excited. And see, from the other side, we couldn't see the houses in which they both lived in, but Mr. Joy actually 
lived in a mansion that was hidden by, by some clouds and some fog that was on the river. Mr. Mediocrity lives in a shack right there in the river's edge. And we're soon disappointed. We approach marriage this way often because we approach marriage with the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil that says, you know what, I need to approach it with a grab-and-take mentality. What is it going to do for me? But if we have a grab-and-take gospel, which is something we ought not to have, but we go after anyway, if we have a grab-and-take gospel, then why do we chase and foster grab-and-take marriages? If we don't have a grab-and-take gospel, why do we chase and foster grab-and-take marriages? Because you see, the only ferry that gets you across over to Mr. Joy is the ferry that's the gospel. Are you following with me this morning? This is a, a serious matter, so to speak. You know, very often we come to marriage giddy and excited, as we ought to. But when the going gets tough, it's not getting exciting, frolicking down the river's edge that you need, is it? It's real world, real life, gospel truth. But you see, the gospel story shapes every part of your life story, and so it shapes your marriage as well. There's no exception there. What I want to do this morning is figure out, by what God's Word says, how to get us from this state of a grab-and-take gospel and a grab-and-take marriage to a bestow-and-give gospel and a bestow-and-give marriage. And see, the only way you get from one side to the other is via the gospel. So we need to figure out how to do that today. We need to ask the question, where do we start with such selfish hearts? Well, we start with the question, why marriage in the first place? Where do we get this idea anyway? What's the point? Is it just something the government says we should do? Well, it comes from Genesis 2.24, which Paul quotes here in verse 31. But in order to get to the commands, we need to understand the foundation of grace and the riches we have in the first place. So I want to take you... I want to take you in a moment back to Ezekiel chapter 16. You can put your thumb there in your Bible. But before we get to Ezekiel 16, I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 1. And here's point number one before we ever even get to verses 31 through 33. This is the foundation for getting from a grab and take mentality to a bestow and give mentality. And it is this, that you are rich in grace. If you approach like that lady did when she comes up to the fairies, and you approach assuming that all you have is what you carry on your back, you're sorely mistaken. The reality is that by the gospel, you are actually rich in grace. Because you have what Christ has. But the question this morning is whether or not you actually believe this. Many of us in this room will say, yes, I love Jesus, I believe in the gospel. But you can yet be justified and yet not actually fully understand what it is that you have and live as though you're not living for Jesus. We don't want to sit there. We don't want to be there. And anyone who really believes in Jesus is not there for very long. 
So Ephesians 1, 16 and 18, this is what Paul is praying would actually happen for the Ephesian Christians. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and knowledge of him. That's what he wants. That's what he prays for. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, right? Have you come in here with closed eyes this morning? And no, I'm not talking about sleepy because it looks like it's a good nap day this Sunday. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are, this is where it's really important, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You see, that there, what I'm getting at is there's more to the gospel than just Jesus loved you. And if there's more to the gospel than just Jesus loves you, that ends up being what's the foundation of your marriage. The world and a lot of people in the church, and this is for married and unmarried here this morning, will tell you that in order to have successful anything, especially a successful marriage, you need to find someone who is all about you. And it's interesting because when Jesus calls us to come across on his ferry over to Mr. Joy, we have to die to self first. That's not what the world tells you. But how is it that we are rich in grace? A few things here that we can, we can glean from, that you are part of the bride by grace through faith. He says here at the end of verse, or in the middle of verse 18, the hope to which he has called you. Has he called you to this faith this morning? So you can say, I want it, I want it, I want it all day long, but until he calls you, you don't really desire it. But when he does call you, you can't say no because you don't want to say no at that point. But not only this that part of the riches of grace, that you are part of the bride by grace through faith. You're not part of the bride that is the church because you wanted to be part of it. You're part of it because you're called. But you're also, you have the wealth of Christ and all of his riches. A lot of times when we come to faith, Jesus is presented as a mere friend and someone who's helpful to us. But he's not that. He's Lord. And when the Bible says that he is Lord and he is king, it means that he is the owner of all things. This is the Jesus that we worship. He is not a poor man. He not only owns the ferry, but he owns the river and the land on either side. And then we come down to the question, are your eyes enlightened to these riches? Because these riches are never ending. What I'm doing this morning before we actually get into a lot of application, because we're going to get into some nitty gritty application on the other side of this, is establishing a very sure foundation because none of this makes any sense in terms of what Paul says unless you understand the gospel. You have to have this clear. So let's go to Ezekiel 16, and I'm going to have to speed it up through Ezekiel 16. This is absolutely one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And I want you to turn there with me. 
Although as we go there, you may get there before I do this morning. Here we are, Ezekiel 16. There's four things I want to throw at you, so to speak, or at least that I hope you see here in what this prophet is saying. If you start in Ezekiel 16, verses 4 through 6, you see the context of this is that he's speaking of the faithless bride that is the people of Israel. So in the Old Testament, we have this huge, wide understanding, so to speak, of of what this is talking about. The people of Israel, in other words, is a lot of people. Where this meets us is that we are the people of God because we are in Christ Jesus. And therefore, this applies to us as well. Because, see, he's been calling his bride to him for a long time. And then the bridegroom finally arrived when he came to pay for our sins. Verses 4 through 6. And as for your birth, and this is this describes us, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field, for you were, were abhorred on the day that you were born. And it's interesting, a lot of times when, when, when children are born, Everyone in the room is excited, especially the mother. The parents are excited. The nurses are excited. The doctor's excited. The family's excited. The friends are excited. Usually. We're talking about generalities here, right? And here is this picture being painted of of this child being born, and no one has any compassion. No one cares. Now, we hope that the case would normally be excitement for someone to be born, but the reality is, is that we know of cases as well where there is no excitement. There's those that don't want the child. See, here's the reality that I'm trying to get at this morning for the gospel to make any sense, is that you were poor and unwanted. JP wasn't born, and then God said, you know what, look at him, he's pretty awesome. I think I'm going to invite him into my family. The reality of the bride of Christ, the reality of all those that make up the church, is that they were poor and unwanted. In other words, what I'm saying this morning is, there's not as much special about you before God as you might have thought. That doesn't mean you weren't made in His image. It means that you need some help and you need a Savior. He goes on in verses 6 and 7. After stating the reality of being poor and unwanted. And he says, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. And notice how it's just a direct command. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your best were formed, and your hair had grown, and you were naked and bare, yet to be clothed. What the prophet is doing here is painting a picture of an unwanted child, and an unwanted bride. And yet there is a Redeemer here that desires her, desires to help her and to clothe her. In other words, not only were you poor and unwanted, you are actually made alive and well. And not by your own decision and not by your own power, but by the gospel, by grace through faith, you are saved. 
The third reality is that you are loved and adored. A lot of times we stop at being made alive and well and think that's all the gospel is. But after you're made alive and well, you're also loved and cherished. Verses 8 through 14. When I passed by you and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil, clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather and I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. Now that's not all that was given to her. He says, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck and I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk embroidered cloth and you ate fine flour and honey and oil and you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty church what i'm saying is this morning and i hope that you're actually listening to me as well is that this describes what it is to be saved you did not come to god already adorned and beautiful you came to god unwanted poor and near death. Marriage only makes sense. The marriage that the Bible speaks of only makes sense if you understand that this came first and your marriage came second. Lastly, not only are you loved and adored, but the reality is that you are imperfect and yet secure. Still in Ezekiel 16, at the end of that chapter, verses 59 through 63. This is after the the people of Israel had basically, as he describes this picture, the wedding had come, he had saved his bride. And what did the bride do but be dishonest, unfaithful to her bridegroom? And God says in verse 59, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet I will re- remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish you for you an everlasting covenant. This is the new covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. He says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Unless you know that he is Lord, marriage seems meaningless. And it is reduced to a grab-and-take relationship. So marriage isn't just for the saved, and it's for the saved and the unsaved. That's why... We see many people getting married, obviously. But if you ever wondered why there's difficulty in it, it's because of Genesis 3. And if you thought you were special enough that the difficulty wouldn't reach your marriage, you probably have realized by now that that wasn't true. And so now you're stuck figuring out where to go. And we're back at the river's shore, 
and you're trying to figure out whether you want to go to Mr. Joy or whether you want to go to Mr. Mediocrity. Which way is it going to be? See, this is the reality that you are rich in grace when you put your faith in Christ Jesus. So now we have a solid footing to go forward. Because you see, the truth is that there's, if we go back to Ephesians chapter 5, there's no grab and take between the bride and the bridegroom here. If you notice this picture painted in the Old Testament, it's not like most of the marriages that we see in our day and time. Well, more, more so like most of the marriages that simply exist. It's a gospel love that carries you from the shore of despair to joy in the other side. If I dare say this, and it is so interesting and odd how this has been so mischaracterized over the past several, or more like past hundred years. It's not just a sentimental love that carries you from one side to the other. It's an electing sovereign, never let you go love. It's peculiar to me that we would say, I don't know and I don't like that God would choose me. What about the others he didn't choose? When we read a passage like like Ezekiel chapter 16, and what we see is all God does is choose his bride, is that we are the bride, and if we are the bride in that situation, would we really say, well, why didn't you choose her? If a bride in that situation says such a thing, she is entirely ungrateful. And I would dare say that where we are in our day and time are simply ungrateful Christians for the grace that has been given to us. This matters enormously in order to get what we're going to get to in verses 32 and 33. Because you see, there is joy on the other side, but it requires that you die to self and leave your baggage on the shore. So how do we live if this gospel is true? Well, if you're rich in grace, number two, what we need to do is this. Bestow and give. In your marriage. Bestow and give. It's the opposite of grab and take. And you see, he says this, and I want you to notice this in Ephesians 5.31-33. He says, therefore, as though he's characterizing or taking in all that he said before concerning marriage. And he says, now, let's look at this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one Flesh, Not two flesh living together, but one flesh. Why one flesh? Because that's what the bride of Christ and the bridegroom become. He's quoting Genesis 2.24 there, but then he gets to 32. And 32 is kind of the nice fruit that sits there in the middle of this. This is the foundation, so to speak. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And then he goes on to a bit of application that we're going to close on. This is the last point. However... Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Oh boy, this is difficult. I was uh, one of the books that I was looking at this week, and have been looking at for some time. On the back of it, it has uh, what the man might say, and it has what the woman might say. And I can't 
quite recall what each one of each one of them say specifically, but it basically is summarized up as this: uh, the woman's uh, uh, phrase or phraseology, so to speak, is in her prayers, "God, I'm trying, change him," and it's about the same for the man as well. Is that your approach to marriage? God, I'm trying. It's not me. It's it's her. It's them. You won't get very far, will you? Some of you know that. Some of you have been living a lot longer than I have. Why do you know that? Why is that true? Where's the foundation? Where do you, where do you, where is this truth at? It's here. It's right here. See, because of his instruction here in verses 31 through 33, Paul calls men to leave their families and cleave to their wives so that another household can be established. This is how generations work. This is kind of no new news to us. But the leave and cleave part is, is more than a friendship, though it is that, right? It's more than a partnership, though it is that too. It's a marriage in which two become one, as he says in verse 31. So man made from the dirt and woman made from the man come back together to fill the world. What a beautiful picture that is. Yeah, but there's no cleaving before you leave here. I want to make that clear as well. And hopefully you can understand what I'm getting at. You don't get to cleave before you leave, especially young folks. You see, God set the joy and fulfillment of the union between man and woman in the context of marriage. In other words, this is what, it's, what I'm getting at. Sex is for marriage. Not because God is stifling your happiness, but because there's protection and love in the safeguard of a covenant. Last week we talked about how one of the, one of the friends that I grew up with that I know doesn't really want to say his vows at his wedding. He doesn't understand what marriage is. So when you assume that it starts with your own happiness, the grab and take mentality, that will be your assumption. When you realize it's bestow and give because of what he has bestowed and give to you, all of a sudden it takes a different meaning. That's why also it can all of a sudden become more painful. But it must be covered with grace. See, this is the covenant of marriage, and marriage is that that's between a man and a woman. And so when we when we tear down the differences between men and, and women, Paul's instruction makes no sense here. It seems like he's just thrown in some words and that the other might like. But we understand that because this is the Bible, because it's God speaking, we know there's, there's no haphazard words here. No, no, Paul says what he means, and he means what he says. And so we can infer that husbands and wives need what God made husbands and wives to give to one another. In other words, what I'm getting at is this, and here's where we actually start to get in some more application. If you've been bored all this time, it's all right. You can wake up now and start listening. We can understand the husbands and wives, what they need because of what he says for each one of them to give, which means that husbands love your wives. Wives respect your husbands. But in other words, husbands need respect more than love, and wives need love more than respect. Because they're told the opposite. 
aren't we? See, we're told that women need respect above all else. Now, I'm not saying, ladies, and please don't hear me saying that because I might get in trouble before I walk out of here. We're not saying that ladies need disrespect. No, that's not at all. But just as though there is an order in which God has made the world, there's also an order in which needs um, are real in our lives. You see, yes, wives need no less than respect, but she is... And she is your closest neighbor, and we are to love our neighbors. But since she was made for man, she is really good at giving him what he needs. You ever thought about it that way? Genesis two, the, the same way, and the same way that your wife's sandwiches seem to be better than any sandwich you could ever make. Have you ever found that weird? I don't know that from experience, but I've seen other people happen. I'm like, maybe, maybe that'll that'll be one day. Why is that? You know, it's there's no like special ingredient in here. The simple reality is that there is a spiritual reality behind something that's small. But no, says the world, women need respect and men need love. You see what it, when you flip these things start to get really messed up. Yes, but no, that women need respect and men need love. See, see, that's not enough for marriage. Men are made to thrive on respect as they take on the world in a mission. And women are, are made to thrive on love as they nurture and fill and beautify the world that's around them. And ignoring this biblical reality is like expecting an engine to run on antifreeze and filling the tires with gas. You've got all the right stuff, but it is in the wrong place. It will not work. What the gospel does is it orders our hearts and our lives so that you might actually thrive on his glory. In other words, husbands, she needs warm affection, not mere obedience to the honey-do list. Wives, he needs honor. I'm going to say this as plainly as I possibly can. Wives, he needs honor only as you give. Only as you can give. Not castrating disrespect. Are you all with me this morning? This is what's not talked about most of the time because it requires that we cough up too much baggage. We run away from this obedience because we're afraid that the baggage might come out and we might have to open up and show everybody what's inside. But see, you're only scared of that if you actually don't understand the gospel. When you understand the gospel, you understand you don't have to open it up. It's left out back. And then it starts to make sense. See, the gospel story shapes your marriage more than you might have thought. And Martin Lloyd-Jones is a wonderful example. He wrote a letter to his wife when he was preaching in the States. And he characterizes kind of what we're talking about here. And I want to read part of his letter at least. He says, 
Let us say this much as he writes to his wife. Thinking of you gives me endless happiness. And I'm more certain than ever that there is no one in the world like you, not even approaching you, not in all the world. And I've been thinking of 11 years ago tonight when we were together, went together to Covenant Gardens and they're back at the Dillery's. I thought at that time that I loved you, but I had to live with you for over 10 years to know you properly. So to love you truly. I know that I'm deficient in many things and must at times disappoint you. That really grieves me and I'm trying to improve. But believe me, if you could see my heart, you would be amazed at how great is my love. I hope you know, indeed, I know that you know, in spite of all my failings. And I can do nothing but say again that from the human standpoint, I belong entirely to you. See, he characterizes... More than mere obedience here, he characterizes this warm affection and this love that the Bible speaks of. And often when we read this passage, and I've said this before, it's probably the third time I've said this, we read, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We go, oh wow, that's nice. So I'm going to make sure I pay the bills maybe a day ahead next month. That's not what he speaks of. And we read the instructions for wives to respect their husbands and we go, well, I just won't say as much to him. Maybe he'll like that. And then he goes, why is she talking less? What have I done? I don't understand these things. That's not what he's speaking of. See how all those things are on the outside? What he's calling us to is on the inside. And the kind of love that men are to give is the sacrificial kind that bestows loveliness. Here's where I really want you to pay attention. This is where this actually gets really amazing. Why do you think the bride back in Ezekiel 16 became beautiful? Because she was loved and given that love. See, when we get the order wrong of their respect and love and we flip-flop them, they're not bestowed upon one another. A woman well-loved does not become a doormat. The kind of respect that women are to give is the kind that bestows respectability. You notice when, when the wives respect their husbands, they become more respectable. When the husbands love and adore their wives, they become more lovely. That's amazing how this works. And a, a man, a man well-respected does not become a tyrant. See, often the world approaches this and says, you can't dare do what the Bible says and submit and respect. He will be a tyrant over you. But what we actually find in the Bible is that when we're talking of Christians, when we're talking of actual people of God who are seeking to glorify him, this being well-respected by his wife ends up making him not into a tyrant, but into someone who's more respectable than he was before. That's mind-blowing. And so what we're doing here is we're, un, we're kind of peeling back all the lies that we've been told. And what this sounds like ultimately is that it sounds like Christ and his bride. There's a hymn that we sing or an old church song. We say, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. We ought to apply that to more areas than just singing in the sanctuary. 
And have you ever noticed that, that the more a wife is loved by her husband, I'm going to say this again, but in a different way, the more a wife is loved by her husband, the more respect she receives from her children. See how this just trickles down. It all started with the fountain of the gospel. And the more a wife honors her husband, the more love he receives from his children. You see, it's not just about the two. It ends up being about the whole household. And the right order bestows love and respect. But there is neither if the both of you refuse to die to self. Are you listening to me this morning? You cannot hold on to your baggage and serve God at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. You have to decide. If it be this day, then it may very well need to be which master you serve. This wise woman once told me it's not 50-50, it's 100-100. Which means we can't get away with 50% honor and 50% love. Husbands, it's 100% love. And wives, it's 100% honor. And that's true gospel love. And lastly, we'll conclude on this. A word to those who are unwed. For those unwed, perhaps that are actually looking for marriage this morning. Look for a man whom you wish to respect and honor. Or for a woman whom you wish to love and adore. And realize that the Bible should shape your idea of an ideal spouse. So that means strive toward being who you would want to marry, would want to marry. We started off this morning talking about getting from one side of the river to the other. And we'll close by me asking where you think you are. Are you on your way to Mr. Joy? Or have you settled for Mr. Mediocrity? And you must assess where you are in your life. And you must assess what you're willing to give up. But I will tell you this, that it is only the gospel that will provide what you are looking for and what you need. And it is only by the grace of the gospel that you can, in your marriage, bestow to your spouse and give to the other one. Because that is what he has done for us. Let's go to him in prayer. And thank him for that this morning. Lord, you have given us such good news. And Father, indeed, though, when we come to things such as this that require, Father, that we think, that we contemplate, and that we ultimately obey, Lord, it can be more difficult than we thought it would be. But Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would convict us. Lord, I pray that you would not let us go our own way. But that you would put things in our path that keep us from chasing after other things. Keep us focused on you, Lord. Help us to apply these things in our lives, Father. May they soak in our hearts and in our minds, Lord. And may the Spirit draw us to obedience. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen.